AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So when you think of fast food stories in Moscow, what comes to mind first? (laughs) I don't know. uh, Maybe that old Pizza Hut Gorbachev commercial? (laughs) Exactly. And I used to think that was maybe the most fun association of fast food with Moscow. But (laughs) I actually read another story recently, and I think it might be my favorite now. So did you know that when McDonald's first opened in Moscow, they actually had to train workers on how to smile and look friendly? <laughs> no. Why is that? Well, the, it turns out there's an old proverb there that goes something along the lines of, a smile without reason is a sign of idiocy. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty rough. And um, I mean, I guess it sounds like a Russian proverb. Yeah, it's it's a phrase that obviously doesn't apply to all Russians. But it did get me thinking, you know, if if Russians are not known for smiling unnecessarily, what places are? You know, where are the happiest places in the world? And what are some of the secrets to happiness in those places? So that's what we're talking about today. Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikater. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, wearing the biggest smile you'll never see, that's our <laughs> friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. It's actually getting a little unnerving now. What What is he smiling about? I don't think he'll ever tell us, but uh, <laughs> good news is there will be plenty of chances to smile later, though, because today's show, we're talking all about happiness and, you know, more specifically, the places in the world where you can find the most of it. Now, happiness is is highly subjective, of course. And if you were to ask 10 people the name, what makes them happy, you'd probably come away with 10 different answers. But there are actually some aspects of happiness that are pretty universal. So we're going to talk about what those factors are and how they manifest in upbeat countries all over the globe. 
And we're also going to try to get to the bottom of why Scandinavian countries like Denmark and Norway always claim these top spots for places ranked by happiness. Yeah, why don't we start with that? Because it really is crazy how Nordic countries tend to dominate those lists. So the UN does this ranking of the happiness levels in 155 countries called the World Happiness Report. They've done this since 2012, and every year the top five has always been some combination of Scandinavian countries. And this year is no exception. Norway is actually ranked number one for the first time, but it's followed closely by Denmark, Iceland, Switzerland, and Finland. So I'm guessing a lot of our listeners are, are wondering what I'm wondering, and that is, is this whole thing rigged? I mean, <laughs> it's almost always freezing cold in these Nordic countries. Plus, you know, they've got the whole midnight sun thing where mm-hmm. daylight lasts 24 hours for a month or so at a time. So no way are these the happiest places on Earth, right? <laughs> yeah, I would have said the same thing before looking into it. But surprisingly, there are some researchers who actually think Scandinavia is cold weather and all those long nights might be a big reason why those countries boast such high levels of happiness. And the thinking is that such an unforgiving climate, that actually helps bring local communities together. I mean, the people there are dependent on each other for survival as well as for company in a way that people in most temperate climates don't have to. And actually, there's this professor, John Hellowell, who was the editor for this year's Happiness Report, and he compares this kind of mutual support system to what we traditionally see with, like, rural farming communities, you know, where people gather to help raise a neighbor's barn without expecting any sort of payment in return. Well, and it's pretty interesting to think about it. And, you know, it might be strange to hear about cold places making people happy, but the underlying premise actually lines up with a lot of what I've read recently on the subject. (laughs) And what premise is that? Well, basically that a person's environment has a lot to do with how happy they feel. You know, there was this study this year that examined surveys completed by about, I think it was about half a million Canadian immigrants. And these are people that had moved to Canada from a 100 different countries over the course of the past 40 years or so. And many of the immigrants' home countries didn't rank anywhere near the top of the happiness report, but Canada did. Now, it routinely places in the top 10 happiest countries. And actually, this year, it was the first country outside of Scandinavia to chart at all. It came in at number seven. That's crazy. But I'm guessing these folks were happier after moving to Canada. Yeah, that's right. And actually, just after a few years in Canada, immigrants from less happy countries started to adopt the higher happiness level of their new home. So even though things like income and family life had stayed more or less the same, These people were happier simply because of where they were. Okay, but there has to be more at play here than just geography, right? There are probably specific characteristics of life in Canada that lead to greater happiness, like the way that, uh, I don't know, Scandinavia's starkness helps foster community. Oh, definitely. In fact, the researchers behind the World Happiness Report believe that about 75% of human happiness is due to just six factors. So they point out quality social relationships, strong economic growth, healthy life expectancy, generosity, trust, and the freedom to live the life that's right for you. Now, any country that delivers in even a few of these categories is likely to have a fairly happy citizen base. I mean, that sounds right, though it still feels weird to be talking about happiness in terms of metrics and rankings. On one hand, it seems right that a country would be concerned with the happiness of its citizens. You know, the pursuit of it is mentioned in the first sentence of our Declaration of Independence, but... I can also understand the argument that happiness is too vague and even, like, fluffy a concept to be held up as this national goal. I mean, this is philosophical, but, like, what do we even mean by happiness? Yeah, and it's it's a tough question to answer. And, and happiness is, is something we all have experience with, or at least hopefully we have experience with mm-hmm. it. But 
It's much easier to talk about where it comes from than it is to narrow it down to a single definition. I was actually looking at this National Geographic cover story that recently came out, and they gave an overview of three countries that historically receive high marks for happiness. And the author of the story, Dan Butner, he proposed that real lasting joy actually comes from the interplay of three distinct kinds of happiness. There's pleasure, pride, and purpose. Huh. So uh, how do you come up with those three? Well, I, I think partly because most measures of happiness can be broken down into those three categories. So going back to the six factors used for the World Happiness Report, you know, take social relationships. They can bring you pleasure or generosity toward others can provide a sense of purpose or Maybe the freedom to live how you want can become, you know, like a source of pride. Hmm. Well, you know, those three types of happiness actually line up pretty well with three types of happiness that scientists have been trying to get a handle on for years. So I, I looked this up and uh, there's something called experienced happiness. And that's the term for the pleasure that comes from everyday life. It's usually measured by how much a person has smiled or laughed during a day. And then pride, that kind of corresponds with uh, evaluative happiness. You know, you, you can think of this as like life satisfaction, basically how happy you are with your career or family, social status, that type of thing. Yeah. So researchers are often trying to assess this by asking you to rank your lives on a scale from zero to 10. So questions like all things considered, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole nowadays? And, you know, this does feel like a very clinical approach to happiness. But I guess that's what happens when, you know, you've got scientists and economists that are thinking about the subject rather than, say, like philosophers, for example. Yeah. So it's funny you should mention philosophers because the concept of happiness that springs from purpose actually originated with Aristotle. He rejected what he viewed as vulgar happiness. That's the kind that yields short term enjoyment. But, you know, it doesn't deliver. It's it's kind of fleeting. Instead, he believed that those who wish to lead these virtuous lives should strive for a type of happiness you find through lifelong learning and maybe helping others. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. And the Nat Geo article I was talking about earlier, they chose Denmark to exemplify purpose-driven happiness. And part of the reason why is that over 90% of Danish citizens are members of some kind of social club or association, and more than 40% of them volunteer for civic groups. Now, that kind of fulfillment from social engagement and giving back to one's community, it, it seems like the kind of happiness that Aristotle was after that you were talking about before. Definitely. And it's really cool that Dan Buettner touched on that because most of us take a more hedonistic approach to happiness. You know, we want to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. I, I wouldn't take as hard a line against that approach as Aristotle. I, I do think he's right that there's this deeper kind of happiness that comes from, I don't know, finding meaning in what you do with your time rather than just how comfortable you are. Right. Uh, but but to be fair, I mean, th this kind of happiness can feel like somewhat of a luxury at times, you know, learning mm -hmm. new things or helping others in need that that often happens only after our basic needs are provided for. And and that's partly why purpose driven happiness seems to thrive in most of these Scandinavian countries. I mean, they have a ton of government programs that make sure no citizen goes without food and housing and health care. I mean, just actually listen to how Butner describes the societal expectations of Danish citizens. Quote, Danes grow up believing they have the right to health care, education, and a financial safety net. University students draw a government stipend in addition to free tuition. New parents can take a year-long government-paid parental lead, you know, nearly at a full salary. This includes gay and lesbian parents as well. People work hard in Denmark, but on average, less than 40 hours a week, 
with at least five weeks of vacation per year. <laughs> I mean, you hear all that and you realize how they have so much time for social yeah, clubs. Yeah, it's not so bad. I'd be happy too. But it's also like, you think about it, it's like a level of government support that would make Bernie Sanders blush. <laughs> Probably so. But, you know, Northern Europe seems to have cracked the code on how to create this environment where people feel secure enough to, you know, pursue their passions without having to constantly worry about how to make ends meet. And it's not just sweeping government programs. I mean, there's a more laid back approach to life that you can see reflected in little ways, too. For instance, have you heard of, and this is something that I had not heard of before, but it, in Norway, it's called the right to roam. No, what, what is it? It's this traditional right to explore nature that Norway has acknowledged for centuries. And so basically anyone is free to hike or camp in any part of the country that they want. What? That sounds so crazy. I mean, even if it's like privately owned land. Yeah, that's the whole point. I can't see this <laughs> flying here, but it, it goes back to that strong sense of community in Scandinavian countries that we talked about. So even though someone owns a deed for a particular piece of land, it's still a part of the shared country. And that means that every citizen has a right to enjoy it at any time. And the only exceptions to this are for private land that's been cultivated. So things like parks and gardens or, you know, maybe farm fields or something like that. That's pretty cool. And it reminds me of like when I was a kid and I just like we had a creek behind our yard and, and we just like follow it through other people's yards yeah. and stuff. It was awesome. But so is this like an unwritten law or I don't know, some kind of like common knowledge type thing? Well, that, that's how it started out. But actually, Norway citizens feel so strongly about the importance of, of just being outdoors and outdoor recreation. They they actually decided to make the right to roam a federal law back in 1957. Whoa, 50s. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it's been but, a while. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's not just purpose-driven happiness that Scandinavians have mastered. So they also have a knack for, like, the simple pleasures of life. And, in fact, there's this term that you see on the Internet used a lot now, and it's used in Denmark and Norway. And I no, I'm butchering the pronunciation. I, I think it's called Hugo. Mm -hmm. But there isn't this like English equivalent for it. But you can kind of think of it of this like general feeling of comfort and kinship or maybe contentedness. Like it's something that applies to anything from like a softly glowing candle to a cup of coffee with friends. And I actually found this account from this Norwegian transplant to the United States who did his best to try to sum up the idea. And this is what he wrote. He wrote, it is basically a state of well-being, coziness, and ambience. It is a feeling of atmosphere and inaction. You can be a huglig person, or you can describe a cabin as huglig, or it can be used as a verb. Let's huga ourselves with a meal, a visit, a book, etc. Huga, huga, huga. <laughs> Actually, you know what this reminds me of? It's kind of like how the Smurfs would always use the word Smurf in this kind of re <laughs> replacement for everything. And so they'd be like... We're going to Smurf all the way up to the top of Smurf Mountain today. <laughs> have you seen Smurfs re recently, Mango? I have not, but <laughs> exactly. Scandinavians are basically the Smurfs of uh, society. Yeah, we get it. I, I get the point. <laughs> I mean, you know, well, well, as long as we're comparing cultures, we should... To Smurfs? Should, to, yes, yeah. We, we should probably talk a little bit about the happiness of our country. You know, because free tuition and health care, that, that, that's one thing when it's a country of about six million people. But the kind of happiness that comes from things like that, it's trickier in, in a place with over 300 million citizens. Absolutely. But before we dig into that, why don't we take a little break? A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season... We are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, 
the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the happiest places in the world. All right, Mango, so it looks like the U.S. came in 14th on this year's World Happiness Report, which, I mean, that's not too shabby given how many countries are ranked, but, you know, with our economic prosperity, you'd maybe think we could manage a little bit better than that. Mm-hmm. But we've already seen that it's a country's overall environment and their sense of community that actually determines the happiness of its citizens, and it isn't really the economy. Which isn't to say that money doesn't matter. After all, the countries that top the happiness index all have these, like, healthy GDPs. And, you know, the nations at the bottom of the list don't. But money isn't everything. And for the U.S., it's the social aspects that we really need to work on if we ever want to muscle our way to the top of the list. 
All right. Well, that's fair enough. But but that doesn't mean there aren't plenty of happy places in the U.S. already. In fact, Gallup recently teamed up with Nat Geo to find the 25 happiest cities in America. So how'd they pull that off? Well, first they established a series of metrics that commonly indicate happiness. And then they pulled data from about a quarter million interviews conducted with adults in almost 200 cities throughout the U.S. And and then they used it to see which cities ticked the most boxes on this list. So I, I am, of course, super curious to know who the winner was. But first, tell me about these metrics. Like, I'm guessing it wasn't as simple as, what was it, pleasure, pride, and purpose that we talked about earlier? Not quite. I mean, the study actually considered over a dozen different factors, everything from civic engagement, vacation time, obesity rates. Actually, this one was interesting, even dental checkup. <laughs> well, nobody loves going to the dentist. So does that mean that the key to happiness is having bad teeth? No, Megan, that was definitely not the study's <laughs> takeaway. In fact, it was actually the opposite of that. And, and, and there was a higher level of satisfaction in places where people made frequent trips to their dentist. All right. So where are all these dentist-loving Americans living? <laughs> really fixated on that. Well, eight of the 25 cities are in California. And, of course, Honolulu scores a spot on the list. But according to the study, the single happiest place in America is actually Boulder, Colorado. Huh. I, I mean, that doesn't actually surprise me. Anytime I hear about Boulder, it's usually something about how healthy the citizens are or how much they exercise. And I've heard that more people per capita walk or bike to work in Boulder than almost any other city in the U.S. Yeah, that's definitely true. Boulder has over 300 miles of bike routes, and their bike-to-work rate is actually about 17 times higher than the national average. Whoa. And something as simple as that leads to all these other boosts in happiness from other things like cleaner air, fewer overweight citizens, you know, a stronger connection to the outdoors, uh, all of these other factors. All right, but obviously no place is perfect, and there's got to be something negative we can mention so this doesn't seem like it's sponsored by the Boulder Tourism Board. <laughs> yeah, and I know we love to talk about lots of negative things here on Part <laughs> as well, but, but there is the fact that about 49% of the locals surveyed for the study reported feeling stress on any given day, and that, that's also higher than the national average. So the happiest city in the country is also one of the most stressed out? Like, how does that even work? Well, it, it seems strange on the surface, but the impression I got was that the citizens are stressed because of how active and engaged they are, not only in their personal lives, but, you know, in the wider community as well. So it's a good kind of stress. Yeah, it's a productive stress. And you may remember back from our longevity episode where we talked about this, that those that are uh, living the longest often do have some of these sources of stress because they are so involved in the world around them. So it, mm-hmm. it, it's the kind that comes from working to achieve a goal or to produce something worthwhile. So it, it really does go back to that purpose-driven happiness that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, so it seems like the more invested and connected you are to the place where you live, the happier you become. And that's true even when you have to continually strive to improve your surroundings because that's the kind of work we find most satisfying. It actually makes me think of this study from Surrey University in the UK called Places That Make Us. So first of all, you know the idea of having your own personal happy place, right? Yeah, like a, a physical or actually even a, a mental place mm-hmm. if it, as long as it makes you feel calm or, or less anxious. So you know, this might be a peaceful room in the house that you've decorated, or or maybe just like a memory of a great trip that you went on. Sure, or an in and out you visited in California. That's, right, that's right. But the researchers at Surrey wanted to better understand the attraction that people feel towards special places like that. So they rounded up 20 volunteers and had them look at familiar images of like houses and landscapes and objects that they'd identified as like personally meaningful. And they also conducted these um 
fMRI scans on their brains at the same time. And when they measured the volunteers' brain activity, researchers found that the familiar places caused way more excitement in the part of the brain linked with these emotional responses than any of the objects did. Huh. Yeah, I mean, specifically, these happy places evoked feelings of belonging and as well as, like, physical and emotional safety. And so do you think that's like what's going on here with Boulder or what? Yeah, or any of these happy places, really. I mean, I I think when a city or a country helps its citizens strike that balance between pleasure and pride and purpose, that whole place becomes a part of them, just like their favorite room at home or the vacation spot they return to every year. Uh, You might be onto something here because, you know, the process you're describing is really a, a pretty organic one, you know, rather than constantly seeking out happiness It comes about pretty naturally just through these opportunities that our environment gives to us. Which seems like the right way to go, right? I mean, I've seen a few studies now that have actually shown the larger the focus a person puts on happiness, the less successful they are at actually being happy. Which is probably why people who buy, you know, all these self-help books about happiness never seem to stop at just one. All right. Well, what do you say we close out the show with a look at some of the places that make happiness look easy? You know, no statistics, no metrics, just plain old happy places. Yeah, it sounds great. But why don't we take a quick break first? Okay, Mango. So as we said earlier, Nat Geo did a ranking of the happiest cities in America Mm -hmm. and Boulder, Colorado came in number one. And I'm happy to tell you that we've actually got the mayor of Boulder, Colorado on the line, Mayor Suzanne Jones. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. Well, I'm happy to be here. And congratulations on being named happiest city in America. Some people are pleased and others are like, we're not that happy. (laughs) (laughs) So would you mind telling us why Boulder is such a happy place? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. Starters is that we are blessed to live in a really beautiful place, and we've really invested a lot over the years in protecting it. We were one of the first cities to uh, create an open space tax, and so we've bought up 45,000 acres of open space all around our city, so there's lots of places to recreate and see wildlife. So we tend to attract athletes and people that love the outdoors, which tend to be happier people. (laughs) Um, But we also, we're a university city, so almost a third of our population are students and professors, and we also have a dozen federal laboratories, like the National Center for Atmospheric Research. So we are filled with people that are well-educated and informed and engaged and working on everything from, you know, the solution to climate change to starting up a new high-tech business. And so there's a lot of um, good energy directed towards um, making the world a better place, um, but having a good time while we do it. Right, right. That's pretty great. You know, I feel like Boulder used to be a little bit more of this uh, kind of hidden gem that that, that people didn't necessarily know what a a beautiful and wonderful place it is. And it feels like more people are coming there and maybe moving there or visiting there. And so... How have you guys dealt with this as a, as a city as you have grown? Well, I will say that that is actually one of our biggest challenges. Colorado's population is booming because it is a beautiful place to be, and the, the economy is doing well. And there's a lot of people worried that we're going to uh, kill the goose that laid the golden egg by you know loving this place to death. So I was going <laughs> to say we are happy to be considered the happiest city, but a lot of people would argue that um, – we should keep that a secret because more people kind of is challenging to manage. And so what plans do you see for Boulder's future? 
So I think one of our big challenges is how do you um, keep being vibrant and gritty and interesting and, and, you know, not too trendy? And I think we wrestle with that because um, there's a lot of growth pressure, and with that comes um, a real affordability challenge. So it's really expensive to live here now, mm-hmm. and that challenges diversity, um, mm-hmm. both e- economically and ethnically. The other thing is when thing, things are going really well, and, and the question is how do we um, keep them vibrant and interesting and evolving, and yet also keep what we love about this place as it is. These are the problems that come with success. Boulder's a really wonderful place. I will note that the entire Denver metro area is really thriving right now, and it's uh, it's a really wonderful place to be. Yeah, that's wonderful. great. Well, we know that we're all very happy talking together today, but we do have to put you to the test with a really, really challenging and some might say dumb quiz. So, <laughs> Mango, what uh, what what quiz are we playing with Mayor Jones today? It's called, Come On, Everyone, Get Happy. All right. So, here we go. We've got five questions for you, Mayor Jones. Are you ready? I'm ready. Every answer includes the word happy in oh, it. Oh, that's right. Every answer inc- includes the word happy. Okay, here we go. Question number one. This show gave the world the term jump the shark when Fonzie jumped a shark on water skis. Oh, happy days. Yeah, that's right. It happened during the fifth season, and while it seemed out of character for the show, it was meant to showcase Henry Winkler's real-life water skiing skills. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) All right. Question number two. In the very first of these kids' meals sold by McDonald's, kids got either a McDoodler stencil, a McWrist wallet, or a McDonaldland character eraser shaped like Grimace or the Hamburglar. So what kids' meal are we talking about? Well, Happy Meals, of course. That's right. You two got for two. it. Two for two. Question number. We told you it was a really hard quiz. Question number say. three. <laughs> Here we go. This term came about in 1914 and wasn't initially associated with bars or deals on snacks. Instead, it was used to describe 60 minutes of scheduled entertainment that sailors would get in the afternoons to alleviate boredom at sea. Well, happy hours. And I will say Boulder is a great place for that. We have lots of breweries and we take advantage <laughs> of that one. That's great. Yeah, that's right. And until post-prohibition, a happy hour could include anything from live music to dancing to boxing matches. Oh, that doesn't sound very happy. Okay. <laughs> All right. Number four. This song, sung once a year to most people, was used in the first ever singing telegram to celebrate someone's special day. Uh-oh. It's happy something. Um, happy grams? I don't know. This would be the happy birthday song. It was actually, what was this song originally oh. called, Mango? It was it was originally called Good Morning to You. Good Morning to You. <laughs> All right. You're three out of four. This is the last one for the big, big prize. Here we go. While R.E.M. made a lot of money off of this very happy song, according to lead singer Michael Stipe, quote, if there was one song that was sent into outer space to represent R.E.M. for the rest of time, I would not want it to be that song. Shiny happy people. Yeah, that's right. You got it. So how did Mayor Jones do today, Mango? She went an amazing four for five, which means she's going to get our very top prize, a part-time genius certificate of genius, as well as a hearty congratulations. Wow. Well, congratulations again, Mayor Jones, on being named the happiest city in America. And thanks for joining us on Part-Time Genius. My pleasure. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. 
I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Okay, so we've talked a lot today about measuring happiness and how it does or doesn't relate to the GDP. And I know we've mentioned this on a previous episode, but I wanted to talk about a country that doesn't gauge prosperity by gross domestic product, but by GNH, which is gross national happiness. <laughs> well, we might have said no metrics, but but I think <laughs> we should make an exception for one as goofy as this. But we, we should remind our listeners what place we're talking about. Yeah, Bhutan. And it's, if you don't know, it's this small Buddhist kingdom tucked away in the Himalayas. It's been around for centuries, but its borders were closed to tourists until 1974. 
which was just a few years after the country revealed its new happiness-based approach to measuring progress. I mean, the whole country is about the size of Indiana, so tourism is still tightly regulated. I mean, I did like reading about it and talking about it before, but is, is GNH, is that actually working for them there? So according to the Bhutanese, it is. And the country released a study in 2015 that showed that 91.2% of the population identified it as either narrowly, extensively, or deeply happy. <laughs> That's kind of a range there. <laughs> narrowly to deeply. So so what are they all so happy about, though? <laughs> Lots of stuff. So for one thing, life expectancy in Bhutan has doubled over the last two decades. The country also has an almost 100% enrollment rate for children in grade school. And it's taken all kinds of steps to protect its natural environment, including a monthly pedestrian day when all private vehicles are completely banned from its roads. <laughs> I mean, that does sound pretty sweet. But I don't know. Are you sure they're not cooking the books just to make life in Bhutan look a little bit better than it actually is? <laughs> I mean, it's not a real life Shangri-La or anything, despite its reputation. But even the UN has started to explore ways to apply Bhutan's GNH model to other parts of the world. In fact, that was the inspiration for their whole World Happiness Report project. But if you're still unconvinced, listen to how Bhutan's Minister of Education makes the case for his country's unique approach to progress. And these are his words. People always ask how you can possibly have a nation of happy people. But this is missing the point. GNH is an aspiration, a set of guiding principles through which we are navigating our path towards a sustainable and equitable society. We believe the world needs to do the same before it's too late. Well, I mean, they, they, they seem to have a point there, which, you know, I guess that's why at the first sign of Armageddon, I'm going to be booking a trip straight to Finland. <laughs> why Finland? Well, because the end of the world can be stressful and, and the <laughs> Finnish seem to know how to unwind. I mean, after all, they're the only country with a deeply ingrained sauna culture. And you know, I've been looking for a sauna culture. I don't know if you've heard this, but the Finns had this deep love for warm wooden saunas. And this goes back centuries so much so that there are over 3.3 million saunas for Finland's 5.4 million <laughs> citizens. That's more than half a sauna for each person. And that means these things are just about everywhere. This is homes, offices, factories, not to mention really unexpected places like airport lounges, underground mines, even parliament. It was so much fun reading about all these different <laughs> weird places you'd see them. So I, I don't know if you know this, but I secretly love saunas. Like, they help you with hangovers. They make you feel good <laughs> after sports. But I saw this thing in Gastro Obscura that you can actually cook a sausage in a sauna as you sit there and then eat that as a snack after and that turned me a little off sonnet. Oh, really? I thought you were going to say that could like actually raise the rating of the uh, World the Happiness scent. Report. <laughs> but I do get why Finland always ranks so highly as the Happiness Report. I mean, the whole country is just hanging around naked, relaxing, you know, shooting the breeze in their cozy little sweatboxes. Well, I, I will have you know that plenty of important work gets done in these Finnish saunas, too. And uh, according to a report from the BBC, former President Nobel Peace Prize laureate Marty Atasari used sauna diplomacy. And these are these diplomatic meetings that actually take place in a sauna. And he did this to move forward negotiations with countries like Tanzania, Indonesia, several others. And actually, during the Cold War, they negotiated with Soviet diplomats in the sauna. How crazy is that? That's amazing. Sauna diplomacy. I love that. That That's the real secret to happiness. But you know, if it's not saunas, then I think the secret to happiness might have to be monkey buffet festivals, like the one this town in Thailand holds once a year. 
All right, Mango. I feel like you're kind of setting me up this one, and and I'm hoping that monkeys aren't actually on the menu at this monkey buffet <laughs> festival. I've never heard of this before. Definitely not. So monkeys are actually the guests of honor. So each year, thousands of visitors flock to the tiny town of Lopburi, Thailand, and they watch as local long-tailed monkeys are pampered by the adoring residents. So according to legend, the monkeys are the descendants of Hanuman, who's this Hindu uh, god. He's the heroic monkey king who helped build the town of Lopburi thousands of years ago. So to honor Hanuman, the monkeys are now treating to this feast of exotic fruits and sticky <laughs> white rice and other Thai favorites. I mean, the food is piled high. I don't know if you've seen these photos. Like, they're mm-hmm. huge buffet tables, and more than 3,000 monkeys join in the feeding frenzy. Good God. Yeah, I mean, meanwhile, human spectators enjoy all these monkey-themed festivities, like monkey dances and monkey costume contests. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does sound like fun. So, I mean, is this some kind of ancient tradition the town has kept up, or how long has this actually been going on? Yeah, so it's actually been held since uh, 1989. Oh, wow. Seriously <laughs> ancient. Yeah, it's definitely not some sort of sacred cultural tradition, but it's more of a marketing scheme of this local businessman. He wanted to increase tourism to Lopuri, and his plan's actually been a huge success. I mean, like the it. festival continues to draw more and more visitors to the town each year, much to the delight of hungry monkeys, I'm sure. Well, it's at least drawing more monkeys to the town each year, it sounds <laughs> like. And it's definitely the happiest place in the world for those monkeys, I would have to imagine. <laughs> right. And I actually think there's a good lesson there for the rest of us about finding your own happy place. Because in the end, ranking and comparing the happiness levels of different places is kind of futile. Well, I mean, I don't really like to think that we've wasted the better part of an hour here, but what do you mean by that? (laughs) No, I don't mean that. I just mean happiness is happiness. Like, either you have it or you don't. And if you do, then you're lucky. And if you don't, then it's time to try something new. Because the difference between living in the number one happiest place versus, I don't know, the 10th or 14th happiest place is probably something you can make up on your own. Actually, it's interesting that you say that because I was checking out this one study from the University of Edinburgh where researchers determined that roughly 50% of human happiness is genetically predetermined. So the idea is that some hardwired personality traits like, you know, being sociable or active or hardworking that that actually cause happiness in the people who possess them. Hmm. And many psychologists have actually suggested that 10% of our happiness is due to life circumstances, you know, like age and income education, location, a few things like that. Sure, but what about the other 40%? Well, that's entirely up to us. Hmm. Well, I I know one thing that's guaranteed to make you at least 40% happier. Me too. That's that's eating one of those sausages in a <laughs> finished sauna, right? I was thinking something more like a fact. Oh, okay, well, that, that's good too. So we'll go with that. All right, my first fact. Let's see here. All right, well, last year, computer scientists at the University of Vermont were on the hunt for the happiest words in the English language. So they turned to a crowdsourced survey system and and looked at over 10,000 words. Some of the words that turned up in the top 200 were cupcakes, weekends, beach, victory, heaven, mother, as well as both Ha 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 and ha 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 ha. ha. <laughs> you know, both of those were words, but the happiest word was laughter. I like that. Well, you know, we're in the middle of the holiday season here. It was interesting to read about a few studies that have shown that uh, family rituals make people happier. And that is those who have rituals they practice at Christmas or New Year's or even Easter 
Whenever families tend to get together, they felt closer to their families. Huh. And interestingly, the type of rituals doesn't seem to matter as much as the number of different rituals. So, you know, stuff like Easter egg hunts and family dinners at Thanksgiving, going to watch a New Year's celebration, that type of stuff. Oh, that's pretty neat. Well, I don't think most of us would be surprised to know that spending time in nature makes people happier. But there have been some pretty interesting findings from recent studies. One out of the University of Michigan found the benefits of walking in nature are found to be even more significant when you walk with a group. Another one found that exercising outdoors saw greater mental health improvements than those who exercised indoors. And yet another one found that those who simply looked at pictures of urban landscapes saw more activity in the part of their brain linked to negative emotions when compared to those who looked at natural scenes. So to recap, nature is good for us. <laughs> so I recently read about a study out of UC Davis where psychologists had three different groups keep weekly journals. And the first group, they had to write about what they were up to that week. The second talked about things that were irritants that week. And the third wrote about things they were grateful for. And sure enough, a couple months later, those who'd written about things they were thankful for reported being more satisfied with their lives than the other groups. They even had fewer negative physical symptoms like headaches and runny noses. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, speaking of little daily things we can do to make ourselves happier, we've talked about the benefits of exercise on our mental health, but I was actually curious to see what that meant in terms of how much exercise. And it turns out that just 20 minutes of exercise can actually boost your mood for up to 12 hours. And of course, those who exercise regularly are generally found to feel a greater satisfaction with their lives. Well, you open the show with a fact about McDonald's, and I've actually been saving one about Mickey D's. Did you know that in the 2015 Paid with Lovin' campaign that they ran? (laughs) I love that name. (laughs) Paid with Lovin'. I can't say I remember that one. Well, the idea was to encourage people to do nice things, which would then put smiles on people's faces. So they randomly chose 100 customers and asked them to do nice things as the payment for a meal. And there was one account from a customer who was not so psyched about this, and it kind of made me laugh, so I wanted to share it. Kate Beckelder, who happens to be an editor at The Wall Street Journal, wrote, quote, Suddenly, the cashier began clapping and cheering, and the restaurant crew quickly gathered around her and joined in. This can't be good, I thought, half expecting someone to put a birthday sombrero on my head. (laughs) The cashier announced with glee, you get to pay with lovin'. Oh, gosh. Confused, I again started to try to pay, but no, my fellow customers seemed to look at it with pity as I drew my fate, asked someone to dance. I stood there for a mortified second or two, and then the cashier mercifully suggested that we all dance together. (laughs) Not wanting to be a spoil sport, I forced a smile and raised the roof a couple of times <laughs> as employees tried to lure cringing customers into forming some kind of conga line, oh. asking them when they'd last been asked to dance. The public embarrassment ended soon enough, and I slunk away with my free breakfast thinking, now there's an idea that never should have left the conference room. That is so painful <laughs> but hilarious to hear. And I mean, not only did you match my Mickey D story with a better one, but The idea of someone raising the roof for a hamburger, (laughs) that is worth the win in itself. So congratulations. I'm giving you the fact off. Thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening. That's it for today's episode. Don't forget, we love to hear from you. If you have any fun facts or any questions, you can email us parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. You can also call us on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. 
Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.